This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. First, I just got to thank everybody who gave all of their tips and feedback on that Rate My Workflow video. I really appreciated it. I copied and pasted every single one to a different document. I'm going to go back and reference all those kind of all at once and see if I could improve my workflow, see if I could have something as efficient or even more efficient in DaVinci Resolve. And I even took tips from Epos Fox, the stream professor himself's last video, to try and process audio in real time for the two weeklies, the this one and then the weekly roundup. I'm doing it this time as an experiment, so if you would be kind enough to take your time once again to let me know your feedback on it, uh, you know, you could just throw it in the YouTube comments or something. If it stinks, I won't do it again, or I'll get better at it. I only spent a few moments tweaking it, but if it's good enough, hey, maybe that'll save me an extra 10 minutes a week or you know, 20 minutes a week, 10 minutes a session for the, the stuff that I'm doing for the long form podcasts. I always want to process those separately because there's been many times where there's been stuff that happened where having the original audio to process later was better. But who knows, maybe that'll change in the future. But as always, I just want to make this easier on your ears, <laughs> make it sound more professional so you, I don't give anybody a headache and, you know, or any more so than I do after rambling too long. Speaking of which, let's end, end this and just jump right into the questions. First up, over on Patreon, Raymond wanted to follow up on our conversation from last week. I guess I guessed correctly that the five and a quarter inch reader we were talking about is the USB or media reader that would fit where your CD-ROM drive would in your PC case, but have it all nice and integrated. And Raymond wanted to know if I had any recommendations for external card readers in case you found one that's absolutely perfect, but not so fast for inside your PC. And maybe you sometimes really need to copy like a whole bunch of CD-ROM ISOs over and you want the speediest possible. And for that, I would give basically the same advice I gave last week. Go on Amazon, find something that's returnable if it doesn't work. However, definitely double and triple check the speed rating specs because for my brain, especially, you know, the nerdy side, I always think, ooh, you know, is there a new USB 3.2x2 reader for SD cards? And then I start going down that rabbit hole and realize, well, the SD cards I use don't even come close to hitting the maximum speed rating on the, you know, just basic USB 3.1 and over. So you, you really want to check into what media you're going to be using and kind of go from there. You know, maybe kind of take an accounting of all the SD cards you have. If they're all like SanDisk Extreme, those are fast, but you really don't need anything more than a USB 3.0 for most of those. So I would kind of take all of that into, into account when you're trying to choose one. Next question, Raymond was kind of looking for low latency solutions based on the Mr. Add-ons latency guide or latency sheet that's right on that website. And they were wondering how to know which one to choose. And I would really just sort it by latency and kind of go from there. And you want to sort it by average latency because the way that Mr. Test works, uh, it you essentially solder everything up, you know, you, you have everything all connected. You run the software. I showed this in a live stream and Lewis did a full video on it as well. But then it runs, you could run thousands of readings in just a few moments. 
So taking the average is important. Uh, you know, I would glance at the maximum and minimum, but really take a look at the average because very often with stuff like this, your maximum ratings might be blips that only occasionally happen, which could potentially even happen on original consoles. And the minimum, while that's a very good reading, I think the average is the most important because it's average of what to expect. So if you were looking for a wireless solution, you should definitely look at the total, you know, wireless controller, wireless receiver, and kind of choose from there. Um, and it, a lot of this stuff kind of all goes together. So if you're looking in the context of a mister, that sheet is perfect. If you're going in the context of a PC, how tweaked is your PC? Because you could add and reduce latency with settings that you wouldn't even guess would add or reduce latency. So I guess I would just kind of say, go by that sheet, look for the lowest latency parts by the average latency, and that should be all that you need. Because while I personally like to obsess over this stuff, at the end of the day, getting something that's a happy medium is probably fine for 99.9% .9 of the gamers out there. And I just, you know, it's kind of my job to obsess over this because if we keep pushing everybody to go a little further, the latency gets lower. And before you know it, a couple of years go by, you blink an eye, and now we're talking about almost zero latency controllers like we have now. So I'll do the obsessing um, and just try to find a happy medium. Definitely under a frame of latency, under 16 milliseconds. Try to aim for as low as possible, even for wireless. But I, I think those are that sheet is really going to be a great place to get you started. Next up, Quantum Guitar had kind of a fun idea about the RGB blaster from Crix, but I gotta preface this with, if you don't know much about the RGB blaster, what we're about to talk about is just silly fun and nerding. You don't need any of this, and in fact, in most cases, it would be a bad idea. But from the perspective of let's nerd out and talk theory, Quantum Guitar wanted to know, since there doesn't seem to be any latency between the RGBS output of the RGB blaster and the composite video output of an original Famicom, could you ever use that composite video as sync in a SCART cable so that you could retain both composite and RGB? And I think the answer is yes. I think the way, if you wanted to test this, the way you would probably want to do it is by just using a SCART to BNC adapter and then plugging that into a PVM, but instead of connecting sync, you just connect composite video from the Famicom and see what happens. If this, uh, the image itself is shifted far over from one side or the other, then you'll get sync delay, which is not latency. It's not like latency as you would perceive it with a controller. It's just the latency to sync the image. So you get it a little bit one way or the other. And if it worked and for whatever crazy reason, that's exactly the setup that you would want. Like if you have a RetroTINK 5X and you're only using SCART, then I would say take whatever RGB SCART cable you have, remove the sync line from the SCART head, and just solder the composite video in its place. And from a theory point of view, I think that would be a lot of fun to test, but from a practicality point of view, I really don't think that's a good idea at all. I think that's just going to mess with things and confuse things and it kind of defeat the purpose of a plug-and-play device. One would argue, I guess, maybe you'd want audio from the... Uh, from the SCART port, but I don't really know. That, that's kind of something you would have to mess with. And even then you could use converters and breakout adapters to do all of that without modifying anything. So if you felt like doing that, by all means, go ahead. If I remember the next time I have it all set up, I'll do it just for the hell of it. But once again, with all respect to you, Quantum Guitar, if anybody's listening and don't really know what we're talking about, just ignore this. This is just nerding out, talking about 
fun, weird, nerdy shit just to see if it could be done. But you don't need any of this. If you want to use your RGB blaster, just plug it in and use it. Looks like Jason missed the cutoff last week. Sorry, I had to record pretty early, but um, there's a bunch of questions. So I'm going to try to do it all in one shot without rambling, and I might need to either edit it or break it up. But let's see how I do here. Um, they have a few more questions regarding sound, especially since the recent videos I've posted have got them rethinking their entire audio setup. I'm sorry. I really just like to have perspective. Your, your original setup was probably fine. I just kind of like to add tidbits, especially for people that haven't purchased anything yet, just to make sure that you're spending your money in the right place. But anyway, their buddy has a 5.1 home theater set up with a 70-inch TV that they're jealous of, but... 99% of the time they sit at an office desk to play games and watch videos. They've been rigging up various janky haphazard 5.1 setups on and around their desk, which have often been misses, but occasionally hits. My video on 2.0 potentially being better for their environment has them questioning their beliefs. However, they recently acquired a fairly high-end-ish 5.1 audio receiver system from around 2003. It's a little odd since the main AC power goes into the subwoofer first and then runs out to the main control unit via another separate cable. Speaker outputs are also all handled on the subwoofer rather than the central unit, which is actually kind of normal. Some of those did that back back then. That was kind of a thing they did for a while. I'm not really sure why. Maybe it was heat, weight. I don't really know. But their questions are, since this system is intended to be used as a 5.1 system, do I think they'd have a diminished experience by using it purely for 2.0 audio? Or as someone who's cheap and frugal, are they not getting their money's worth by using 2.0 instead of 5.1? Um, and also, how can they tell if, assist, if the system is even accepting and outputting a real 5.1 channel sound versus interpreting the input as stereo and processing that into artificial? Well, that's the easy answer. Just the reason I didn't include dedicated 5.1 test patterns in that Dolby Surround video is because you could find them everywhere on YouTube, free downloads, free stuff. So just run one of those and you should be able to test your whole setup, your PC and that to see if it's decoding properly. So that part's easy. Are you not getting your money's worth is totally up to you. And I know that's such a bullshit cop-out answer, but at the end of the day, it's your ears and it's your room and it's your positioning of the speakers. So unless space was an issue, if you already have a 5.1 system, I would use it. Because why not, right? Even if the surrounds don't really do anything in most cases, if you own it for free or if you already paid for it and all you got to do is run some wires, as long as it doesn't cause a giant pain, then I think that would be just a cool thing to try out and just kind of see. And worst comes to worst, you know, sell it and just get yourself two really nice studio monitors and kind of go from there. All right, I chickened out. I didn't answer Jason's questions all in one shot, but after pausing, I kind of realized that was a good thing because this next question applies to not just the setup that Jason has, but probably most setups. And in the manual of that 5.1 receiver that Jason got, it talks about Dolby Pro Logic 2 and Dolby Surround, and it has different ways to decode it. Dolby Surround Movie, Dolby Surround Super Surround, Dolby Surround Music, and that's back to being subjective and something that you should probably test. Same for all of the sound field control stuff, flat, heavy, soft, whatever. What I would do if I were you is run those Dolby Surround tests through 
the well at the very least all of the dolby modes movie music super surround whatever and see if it's changing the decoding between them or if it's just adding basic eq to each and then you could kind of flip through and uh, if you if you realize that those modes are all kind of the same then listen to some content and flip through the different sound field controls to see how those sound and for me personally i just i have everything bypassed i even have tone controls bypassed on my amp because i just want to hear it the way it was recorded if i really wanted to get into eqing music and changing the way things sounded i would probably go digital only and get a very fancy eq setup or have some kind of control via an app but you know for me i just i spend so much time screwing around with this stuff i just want to listen to music sometimes just one of those things that makes me happy so I, I probably would just give it a shot and you never know. There is certainly a case where I turn on enhanced bass on mine where it essentially it runs it in two channel mode with the digital processing on so I don't get the pure analog sound, but it also turns on the subwoofer. And sometimes that's really freaking cool. So sometimes I like that effect, but not really any of the others, but that's gotta be totally up to you. And then same thing with stuff like multi rear surround and virtual rear surround those are things that kind of take 2.0 and add surround effects to it but that's also very subjective and i saw a lot of comments in those videos i posted about oh those are garbage those are garbage not always not always and that's also something where the setting might work perfectly for one game or one movie or one tv show and total garbage on others so it's one of those things where if you're into it then try toggling it and see what happens. I probably, if I were curious, would mess around with it a little bit. And unless I really loved one of the settings, I would just leave it all off. But honestly, you know, I know it's a cop out, but it really is up to your ears. Last question from Jason. If you have an audio setup that you like, but you don't have enough digital inputs, enough SPDIF inputs or HDMI, should you spend the money and go out and get a new one? Or would a digital switch be a decent solution and luckily that is a very easy answer just get a switch if you're on a budget and you already like your system unless of course if you're sitting there going ah i don't even like this thing it's giving me problems uh, you know every every friend i have has a better stereo system then yeah it's time to upgrade but if you're like no i like this this seems great everything seems to be working but i don't want to manually switch my spdif cables every time i switch inputs just get any kind of SPDIF switch. Same thing with HDMI switches, because when it comes to digital, there's very little chance that it's going to destroy the audio. In, there are always fringe, fringe solutions. And in, this is one of those cases where anybody with an actually post in the comment, maybe I missed some, maybe there's some that I didn't even know about that it would be great to be educated from, uh, educated about. However, generally speaking, if you get like a SPDIF switch and you plug five in and one out, it's going to be identical to just unplugging and replugging one at a time. HDMI, you could mess with EDID stuff by accident, but as long as you set it to pass through, that shouldn't be an issue. So I really do think that at the very least, starting out with some kind of digital switch, optical audio, HDMI, whatever else, would, would be totally fine in most scenarios because you don't have to worry about quality degradation or anything like that. And you could save a ton of money. Next up, Shurjor Steinholm has a question about Make Megahertz Project Stellar. It's listed on the website that the mod chip gives Xbox One controller compatibility, but only wired. 
They were thinking that depending on the implementation, maybe plugging in an 8-bit DOE Bluetooth adapter would be possible since it probably would register as a wired X input device. Do I know if this would be possible? So in theory, it's technically possible, but I don't know if there's any limitations. I don't know if there's voltage or amp amperage limitations. And heck, maybe Dustin's already working on something like that. So with all respect in the world, I would kind of ask him through social media or email or whatever else it, what Dustin's thoughts are on that. But overall, it doesn't seem technically impossible, and it seems like a pretty cool idea. But I kind of think that maybe something like we've seen for N64 and uh, just those awesome little Bluetooth dongles might be a better choice. But maybe even Bluetooth isn't needed. Maybe you could do something else. Maybe there would be better receivers. So I think that question's better, better directed at Dustin. I could only add that I don't think there's a technical limitation, but who knows? And, you know, I'm really interested to see Project Stellar in action as well. Because it just it seems like a culmination of all the best ideas all in one. So hopefully that'll come in relatively soon and I can do a live stream demo of it. Two questions for Superfunk. First, are there any S-video switches I would recommend? Um, yes, I would approach this two different ways. I would personally start with a budget switch. A manual push-button switch that has S-video, probably composite, and left and right audio inputs, and then one set of outputs. And I would just give that a try and I would do something like if you have a Super Nintendo, check out the first level. So the one to the left of I think the one to the left of Yoshi's house, just go to the blue background. Actually, I think even right when the level starts, if you just pause it there and just take a look, plug your S video cable directly into your TV, then plug it in through the switch. And do you get weird interference? Do you get that diagonal checkerboard pattern? If not, the switch is awesome. If so, then you should probably find a different solution. But starting with the cheapest manual switch very often results in a perfectly fine result. Now, if you wanted to get crazy and you needed matrix switching and anything else, you could move to an Extron Crosspoint, and then you would just need S-Video to BNC adapters. So it would get a little costly, but then you could have eight in, four out, mix and match, and all in good quality, but that's all up to you. Um, my personal recommendation is unless you know that you want something crazy like that, which is totally fine. I love when my fellow nerds go deep with this stuff. Uh, but I would I'd just start with the cheapest and see what you got. Next question. They just realized that the Sega Naomi has a 15 kilohertz mode. So the Naomi and the Naomi 2 are the arcade versions of the Dreamcast. And they're meant to output 480p. But they do have a 15 kilohertz switch to output 480i for backward compatibility. So in that case, would the following chain work for hooking a Naomi 2 up to a PVM that only supports 15 kilohertz? The Naomi 2 VGA output? to an HD15 to SCART, to the RGB to COMP, to comp uh, component video cables into the PVM. So I th I've never tried that, but I think that's fine. I also think you could skip the RGB to COMP and just plug it directly into the PVM. Um, so I'm assuming you have that because you already have other solutions that require component video, but HD15 to SCART and a SCART to BNC adapter what should be fine and then converting it to component should also be okay there shouldn't be a safety issue doing it that way because if it's just a VGA output the voltage would be taken care of because the RGB lines would be the same it's not like a JAMA output that's high voltage it should just be VGA so I would definitely try that and see I believe it would work 
And the only thing you might want to do is toggle the switch on the HD15 discard. I assume that in 15 kilohertz mode it's still RGBHV, but if for some reason it switches to RGBS, flicking that switch should take care of it for you. So it sounds perfectly safe, um, and if the only thing you, you need to purchase that you don't already own is the HD15 discard, I would say do it. It's been one of my most useful tools in my toolbox, I mean, which is why T came up with it, just because we needed something like that all the time, because I was tired of connecting stuff together to make it so i do really think that that's even if you don't end up using it for that the fact that you even own stuff like this means you're probably going to use it again at some point a couple of questions from charles first they were wondering if i knew anything about voltages on gamecube controller ports specifically when it comes to playing Game Boy, Game Boy color and Game Boy advance games via the Game Boy player attachment the question is because a friend of theirs is trying to use a Smashbox controller on the GameCube specifically for use with the Game Boy Player, but it seems like it's not quite compatible. They were told that there's a decreased voltage coming from the GameCube's controller ports when the GameCube is actively using the Game Boy Player, which is what causes the controller to not work at all. I've never heard of anything like that, but I am absolutely not an expert at controller port voltages. I would really try, uh, try and check with any of the communities that are GameCube focused, um, you know, if you're on the Discord, maybe hit up Extremes, who is definitely my go-to for a lot of info like that. But I don't really have a good answer for you on it. It sounds a bit weird, but I mean, you, you never really know what could be up with that. It especially sounds weird because of the adapters that let you use your Game Boy Advance as the controller. Why would it drop any kind of voltage or amperage or something like that? So. Or maybe that is the reason why. I don't know. That's a it's a very good question, and I just wouldn't know the answer, and I don't want to speculate because then I might just screw everything up. Next, do I have any experience or words of wisdom in regards to using USB-C cables on consoles? Yeah, don't do it. Just don't. Don't mess with it. Don't don't watch a video that says it's perfectly fine because I guarantee you what's going to happen you are going to get the correct power brick and the correct cable and you're going to wire everything together and you're going to be very safe and you're going to check it with a multimeter and everything's going to be cool until you're not the one to touch it somebody comes over and goes to plug it in somebody thinks they're being helpful and you know when you move the console to a different tv they plug it in for you you know you end up selling the console to somebody else that doesn't understand what's going on the moment you either forget what you did, which I'm guilty of that, I'm not making fun of you, I'm making fun of me for that one, but the moment you either forget what you did or pass that console to somebody else, somebody will blow it out with that. You know, there's just, there, the amount of advantages you can get with consolidating everything to a single type of power supply is far outweighed by the number of chances and the, the different scenarios in which you could just destroy your consoles for no reason. So don't do it. Grab a triad. Um, you know, what you might want to look into doing is getting one of those triads from Castlevania, all of the different pigtail adapters, leave the pigtails dangling out the back of the consoles. And, you know, if you, if you really need to save space or just want to start off on a budget, you could do that and then just have that one DC adapter and just plug it into all the consoles into their pigtails, that would be fine. But I, I just can't stress enough not to mess around with things that's just going to end up biting you in the butt later. And a lot of people disagree. A lot of people came down on me when I criticized the Linus Tech Tips video, even though it was technically correct. I just, I, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time now. I just I see the same things happening over and over. And things, the main point I'm trying to make 
is something that makes sense today, makes perfect sense, doesn't often make sense a little bit in the future. And whether that's drilling a Swiss cheese amount of holes in the back of your console to add composite S-Video and RCA audio jacks, because why would you ever need anything other than that? I mean, that made perfect sense in 2000. Seemed like a great idea. And then when everybody is now using scalers and RGB, now it seems like a pretty dumb idea. And I have a feeling this is going to be the same. So I don't mean to come down hard on you. I'm not criticizing you. It's an excellent and valid question, but it's just, it's, it's going to fail at some point, even if it's not you who does it. So feel free to disagree. That's my opinion. That's kind of what these Q and A's are about. My opinions mixed with facts. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely sticking to that because I've seen a lot of messed up consoles and power supplies and setups because people modified stuff and it didn't really make sense later on and people plugged the wrong things in couple of questions from the dressing gown. First, they're looking at recapping their consoles and controllers, and they want to ensure they're using high quality capacitors. As someone who's not familiar with electronic component manufacturers, are there any brands that you would recommend in both the value budget class and the spare no expense class? That's kind of up for debate. Also, what capacitors are still available today at the tail end of a part shortage also has to play into that. But my response was probably not what you wanted, but I think the right thing to do is just go to console five and order your cap kits from there because Luke already spends the time of doing all of that work for you. And then you don't really spend that much more than you would ordering them individually. And one would argue that if you had to make the cap list yourself, uh, buying one of Luke's would pay for itself immediately. So I kind of would want to push you in that direction for that. However, when you start talking about things like recapping your own CRTs, then you probably are going to need to make your own cap list, especially if it's a consumer grade TV, and as opposed to like a PVM that many people are working on, some random consumer TV, somebody probably hasn't done a cap list yet on it. Uh, and in that case, you know, you would want to look for Nichion or Panasonic or just really, you know, Brands that you've probably heard of in the electronics world before and stay away from the Chong capacitors and stuff like that. It's the name brand. Um, I, I believe that's the name brand. C-H-O-N-G. I, I think that's the one that's like notorious for low quality. But I would just kind of get on some communities and some forums and double check what other people are using. And, you know, see if anybody's got any tricks and always see if anybody else has worked on the same or similar TVs because maybe there's a little gutcha in there that you haven't run into yet that talking to somebody else could save you some time. Now, they do realize that working on your CRT can be extremely dangerous, which it can. I don't care how annoyed people get. You can die working on a CRT unless you mod your Super Nintendo in a bathtub with it plugged into the wall in a lightning storm, you're probably never going to die modding your Super Nintendo. That's just not the case with CRTs. It's not likely, but the possibility isn't zero, so it's worth warning people about, period. Um, but I would absolutely subscribe to Steve from Retrotech on Patreon and on YouTube and just go and watch Steve's videos and kind of see what he does. Um, it just, you know, he's great at this. These videos are good and you get a lot of good tips. And it's, if this is something that you enjoy doing, this is a great way to start out. So you can kind of begin doing it yourself. And I always liken this stuff to people who rebuild old cars. There are many people who would look at it and go, why would you want an old thing? And there are even more people that recognize it as a work of art, but go, I don't have the time or skills to put into that. So I'm going to pay somebody to do it for me. And then there are also those of us that go, restoring this old car is almost more fun than driving it. It's the process of bringing it back to life. So choose which one of those people that you are. There is no wrong answer, 
but just know that in order to well i mean if you're going to pay somebody to recap your crt it's going to be a lot of money because it takes a lot of work but if you want to try it yourself are you prepared to give up a couple of weekends of your life the first time you do it from disassembly discharging making the cap kit ordering the cap kit it's my least favorite part by the way <laughs> and then doing the actual replacement and then testing and going back and figure out which one went wrong and why it doesn't turn on and if that sounds like fun to you then by all means go for it i love this stuff but i want I want to present realistic scenarios to people. I don't want people to think changing a capacitor is like changing your oil in your car. You're not going to do it in an hour. You're not going to run down to AutoZone, pick up a bag of caps, come back and be done. So, you know, sorry for all the car references, but I grew up working on cars in my teens and loved it. So then I feel like most people could at least understand the basic concepts. But if I'm uh, barking up the wrong tree, let me know. Adam, Adam, Ant just got HD retrovision cables for their SNES Junior that has a Voltar RGB mod installed. The picture looks amazing on their CRT, but it was a little brighter than what they remember, but the colors still look amazing and are the best they've ever seen. They tried using the switch on the HD retrovision cable to darken the image, and it looks good, but not as awesome as the brighter image. So how do they know if the image is too bright? The colors are not washed out, and the blacks still look good, but... Even if it is too bright or too dim, the setting levels on their TV are exactly where they like them for the other consoles, so they'd like to avoid changing brightness. So I'll answer your question, but I, I need to give a little bit of a primer as to what's going on here. My guess is that you're seeing the difference in tolerance between the components on older consoles. So just a very quick overview. I'm pretty sure most of these console, consoles used like 5% tolerance resistors which means if you bought a 100 ohm resistor, it could be 105, it could be 95, or it could be 100. Whereas modern mods use 1% tolerance. So it could be 100, it could be 101, it could be 99, but it's pretty much gonna be 100. And the reason for this is just cost, because there was zero chance back in the 80s and 90s that anybody with home consumer equipment could have seen any of these details. So why would these companies have wasted millions of dollars on components that no one would be able to see the difference for? So what you're probably seeing is a couple of consoles are, are a little more off, probably to the dimmer side on these. And that, that was something that you know was kind of always universal. Whenever things get too bright, the image gets washed out to a little too dim. All you gotta do is turn up the brightness on your TV. So it's very likely that all your old consoles are just a bit on the dimmer side. And now that you have a solution that has a modern RGB mod with a modern amp, and the amp itself is probably less tolerant than the older ones with a great cable, that's probably what you're seeing. So what I suggest doing, first of all, how do you know if it's too bright? Fire up the 240p test suite and check the different patterns and check the brightness settings on all of those. And that's how you would be able to tell. If you could still see the the, uh, the color gray ramp, the, the black to, to bright ramp up and all of that stuff, switch the HD retrovision switch to each and try to get it to be a happy medium. And if you have the HD, or, sorry, if you have the 240p test suite that's able to run on any of those other consoles, run it then as well and try to find a happy medium. I agree that it's annoying to try to always change brightness and contrast levels between consoles, but you should be able to just find a happy medium and kind of go from there. The only other thing I'd like to add is that I don't want to speak for anybody else's eyes, but my brain very often 
gets tricked by brighter images. So I have to find visual cues, especially with video games. So if I'm watching a TV or a show or a movie and it's a little too bright, not very bright, a little too bright, I'll pick up on it after a couple of minutes and I'll eventually just kind of see stuff and go, oh, what setting did I mess with to do this? But on video games, very often at first glance, too bright looks vibrant and you need a visual cue like the pattern in the 240p test suite to verify what it is that you're seeing. And not everybody does this. Some people could just look immediately and be like, that's way too bright. But depending on the console, the game, the artwork in the game, sometimes you get the vivid mode effect where at first you're like, wow, that looks great. And then you settle in for a while and you're like, oh, somebody put this crap on vivid mode, huh? So I think that could be, my guess is that could be what's up with the switch on the HD retrovision cable. The dimmer setting is probably the correct one. And you just have to find a happy medium on your TV for this. And the brighter setting might be a little bit too bright but you don't really notice because things still look kind of cool because it's popping out at you. So hopefully I was able to point you in the right direction, but let me know, um, you know if I could clarify anything else or if I missed something. Robert wants to know if I could recommend a good CRT TV that has a component video input for light gun games, preferably between 27 and 32 inches. So I think there's a couple of things to note here. First and foremost, any CRT that's in good working condition that doesn't have a dim or burned in tube and doesn't have a bunch of exploded caps is a is the right answer, period. If this were, you know, 2005 and we were going into a store and picking out new TVs, I would have a wildly different answer. But at this point, we're all working on used equipment. We got to deal with the best of what's left over. So that's always my recommendation for a CRT. One that you could actually find that's good in good condition is always the right answer. Now, component input and in light gun games is gonna be the issue. Not because of compatibility, but because to guarantee or to increase the likelihood of more compatibility, you're going to wanna to find a CRT with a curved glass front, not those flat glass CRTs. So that would be my second suggestion is just keep checking all of the, the normal places, Facebook marketplace, Craigslist, probably not eBay for something that size, driving around and seeing CRTs in the side of the road. Really just try to find anyone that has a curved glass with a component video input, pick it up. Don't pay a lot for it. Um, you're definitely going to want to just try to find one used or unless you happen to know somebody who's refurbished it or who could confirm everything for you, I, I certainly wouldn't spend very much on it. And then take it home and try it out with your light guns and see what happens. If you can't find one with a curved glass or you find a free one with a flat glass front to it, just try it. It's, you know, it, it's big, it's heavy, it's going to be a pain to move around, but if you could find one... I still all the time see on Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace, free TV, left it on my front, you know, at the end of my driveway, come get it by Tuesday or the trash pickup is going to get it. I, I've seen tons of tons of CRTs that way. And four out of five work perfectly fine. You know, maybe the plastic front is broken or something like that, or there's some scratches on the plastic, but functionally they're totally fine. So I would just go back to the first part of my answer. Start with anyone that you could find and then get picky. So maybe let's say you find a 27 inch flat glass Sony and works with NES light gun games, but a little wonky. And you know, now you have something to start 
and then keep your eyes open for other stuff that's out there. But yeah, whatever you can find that works is always going to be what you have to start with with CRTs. Um, and please let me know if you have any other questions or if I was a little unclear about any of that stuff. Oliver had a few more questions about my weird audio setup here because Oliver seems to have a setup very similar to mine and wants to do basically the same thing. So please check out that video if you're interested. I'll, I'll leave a link in the description. But Oliver's still not clear on how my PC is actually hooked up to those rear Yamaha speakers that also double as back speakers in my surround sound setup. Is the PC connected to the Motu? And if so, what kind of connector is used? So the Motu M4 is a USB-based sound card, let's just say, external sound card device. So I have, in the BIOS of my PC, disabled all onboard audio. I just I don't even want it running. I don't want to waste the very little bit of power it would take up. And I only use this as my audio output device. So that's USB to the PC. And then the Motu has its balanced outputs going into that switch uh, that I had listed. Pretty sure I listed that switch, but I'll make sure that link is in the description of that video. And then the RCA outputs for my AVR are then going into the ground loop isolator into that same switch. So that's how that goes. Uh, Motu into the switch, RCA connections from the AVR into the ground loop isolator into the switch and then the switch into the Yamaha speakers. And that's basically it. Uh, next, if they decided to connect an older ProLogic decoder or AVR to the new AVR via line level connections, would this create any issues or problems with the behavior of the rear speakers? No, because as long as it works with a normal source, so HDMI in and you're, you're, everything works fine. When you run that stuff through the RCA inputs of your current AVR, if, if it's even needed, any other kind of decoder, then your amp is taking that in and then just treating it like any other signal. So maybe it does have an analog bypass setting where it would only send it to five of the seven or nine speakers that you have hooked up. Or maybe there's a DSP setting that you could have it process any way that you would like but it should just treat it like a 5.1 or a 5.0 or 4.0, depending on which of well, those older uh, formats, it should just treat that as the same way it would have accepted it through any other input and hopefully split it through all of the speakers in the back like I showed, or like mine did in that video that I showed, the Dolby Pro Logic. So just, uh, I, this is one of those scenarios that check the settings in your AVR, but there is no technical reason why individual surround input versus HDMI versus SPDIF would have any difference whatsoever on this stuff. Also, is there a workaround for folks who might be using a modern AVR that doesn't have enough RCA line level connections to do the old format decoding and rear speaker hookups at the same time? No. Uh, or if there is, it's complicated and expensive. What I would like is some, what I would really just like is to create a modern decoder for this. And I, I've got a couple of friends looking at it, but I also have them working on a million other projects at the same time. So hopefully we can get this stuff out so my friends can start getting paid for all the work that they do. But I would, I would love to see just a basic thingy where you, you could plug stuff into it and it's got a SPDIF output or maybe even an HDMI output or something like that where it digitizes and re-encodes the audio. You would have to do that in real time to not add latency because um, audio latency is very annoying. It might not be as annoying as input latency on a, you know, when a gaming setup, 
but it is still something that drives me nuts. But that doesn't exist yet. This is me pontificating about things that are still in the design phase and might not ever become a thing. So um, the only workaround would be to find some expensive equipment that could re-encode stuff. And to be honest, you know, that's probably a discussion for another time because I would have to see if what's out there, how well it works, would it even work with the older format, what happens when you do this stuff, would it add latency, you know, could you even use it for gaming if you wanted to, but I hope I'm wrong, so please chime in. If anybody knows of anything that could accept a two-channel Dolby Pro Logic or Dolby Surround signal and output via digital, so SPDIF, whatever else, coax, that encodes it into a five-channel signal, please let me know because I would love to buy, you know, buy a couple of them, test them, and do a review for people to share. But I don't think that exists, or if it does, I don't think it's easy to find or or reasonably priced. So, crossing my fingers that I'm wrong about that, though. Chris Dale wanted to share his experience with the Otaku Games 10-in 3-out Switch that I had reviewed and did the live stream on. First of all, there's the Switch they received definitely had the left and right audio outputs reversed, as did mine. And they had planned on remedying that by modifying one of the SCART cables, but theirs didn't come with any SCART cables at all. And they're now in the process with AliExpress trying to make it right because the switch also has a crack in the plexiglass where the screw holds it down. So thanks for confirming that the what, that must be the latest model and it has those issues. One thing that I definitely want to add is I, I did make a slight mistake. There were different versions of that switch that came with different packages. So the, the switch itself, let's just say it was Rev 123. Rev 123 could also ship with two SCAR cables, one SCAR cable, or no SCAR cables. And I, I think I got the correct link to it, but you might want to just double check that. I still think that it was, I can't remember off the top of my head, but for just a few bucks more to get those SCART cables, even if you take those and put them directly into your bin of spare stuff, I thought it was really cool that it came with cables that didn't suck, and I thought it was worth that extra cost. So I kind of screwed that up in the um, in the live stream. Uh, hopefully I got it right in the, the written post that I did. So it sounds like it doesn't really matter. It sounds like even if you accidentally bought the one without the cables that came with it, yours still got cracked, so it's worth working with the seller on it. But I do appreciate the feedback because I it's really important to me that I get these reviews right. And, you know, it's one of those things where if a developer sends me a product and says, hey, review this, we've been shipping these for three months, and I review it live, and it turns out that one's broken, that's eh, kind of not my fault, and I don't really have, feel that bad about that. But on the flip side, if I go to review something all on my own, or like in this case, if somebody was kind enough to ship it to me, you know, that's, is what I'm seeing, what everybody else is seeing, is that, you know, is that fair? Did I get, just get a bum one off the line and all the rest of them are bad? So, or I mean, all the rest of them are good and only mine was bad. So I do appreciate when people chime in like this because I really liked that switch and I, I still would recommend it. I just want to make sure that I'm accurately reviewing it and representing it because I never want to, I mean, I just hate giving bad reviews. I love just doing only good reviews, but that's not fair to you or, or that's not how life works. So thanks for confirming that that is an actual problem and hopefully you'll be able to just have a, a new, at the very least, a new Plexi sent to you. Finney just picked up an Atari ST color monitor and had a few questions about it. Now, I'm going to start out by saying I've never even seen an Atari ST monitor, so anything I'm about to say is only guessing and speculation, which means I'm probably wrong, but I do have a few things to add to this. So, 
Finney said that they were able to get their Genesis working just fine uh, by using an EL1881, which that just converts RGB-S to RGB-HV, and the RGB signals are just passed through. If that's the case, and you want to try to find a way to use component video signals through it, I would start out with any component video to VGA converter. Key Digital had a couple of them that were fine. I think Steve from HD Retrovision got a little bit OCD with it and, uh, and didn't like them, but from a safety point of view, they're fine and they seem to work okay. So uh, any generic component to RGB or, or RGB HV VGA converter should be fine. Don't get any with any kind of processing built in. Try to find some used ones. I think I'm trying to remember the, the name brands, Kramer, Geffen, Key Digital, Audio Authority, there were a bunch of brands that came out in the early 2000s, so they were definitely compatible with 480i, 15 kilohertz. So I would just try that, and that should be a cheap solution. It should be a completely safe solution. You mentioned that you just had to kind of tweak your uh, the H-Sync hold in the back of the monitor if you needed to mess with anything like that. So I don't know. I would start out with that and see where you go, because you could probably find one of those used for like 20 bucks. So if it doesn't work, I mean, 20 bucks for another tool in your toolbox, if you're a nerd like me, that's a very worthy thing to purchase. And worst comes to worst, if that doesn't work the way you wanted, you could try a comp to RGB and try running just RGBS into it, which you said it should work that way. But I would just kind of bring it back a little bit. Don't really think about the extra details and just do it that way. There should be zero safety issues. So double check everything I'm saying, but... If you're talking about things like um, you know running 0.7 versus one volt, I don't think you have anything to worry about for testing. If it works and it looks good, I think you should be fine. But if anybody listening knows that the Atari ST color monitor is weird and it requires these things and I'm about to give bad advice, please chime in in the comments. But in all of my experience with weird monitors, if what you're doing seems to work and the specs say that it can handle a standard RGBHV signal, I think you should be totally fine. Well, that's it for this time. What did you all think of the audio? The opening was slightly different than the rest. I realized I didn't put the EQ on the opening, but I don't know. I'm all ears. Um, I just want to make this as clear and easy to listen to as possible. And if I can at the same time, save myself as much time as I can, because the more time I could save, the more chance of I could continue to do these you know, three videos a week is a bit much, plus doing the articles and the, all the behind-the-scenes stuff. But I don't want to falter. I want to keep doing it. So anything I could do to shave a few minutes off was absolutely awesome. But anyway, thank you to everybody who watched uh, and to contributed to these. I really absolutely love doing them. And if you want to ask any question, just ask wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. Because the way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. And plus, I like just scrolling through and answering them all in real time, as you saw today. Any of the support services are eligible for these, though. Uh, it just so happened that the questions were only on Patreon today. So anyway, thank you to everybody, and I will see you next week.